just read from verses 21 through 30 because we looked at this passage last time and we talked about it um, in some detail. And I'm going to address some, uh, some issues that arise from it. So we will just read from Judges chapter 19 verses 21 through 30. This is God's word. So he, the old man, brought him the Levite into his house and gave the donkey's feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Amen. As we saw last week, many things in this story are very disturbing, to say the least. Last week we talked about the obvious ones, such as the mom's intention to homosexually assault the Levite and their heinous act of violating and abusing his concubine all night long. But there are other disturbing things as well. We cannot help but notice the horrible ways women are viewed and treated in the story. This touches on some some of the social issues that are being vigorously debated about these days, such as toxic masculinity and patriarchy. Today we want to pay close attention to this important issue and see where the Bible stands and what it teaches us about the relationship between men and women. In his commentary on Judges, Lawson K. Younger interacts with a feminist interpretation of this story, which is put forth by J. Cheryl Exum. She argues that, this is um, Younger speaking, she argues that the issue in Judges 19 is, male ownership of women's bodies, control over women's sexuality. 
The aim of the passage is to circumscribe and control women's behavior. I want to put a little disclaimer. I did not read this article by Exum, but I am just going by what uh, Younger said. But I think she represents uh, the view uh, of a certain uh, ideology, and uh, I'd like to interact with what uh, she said um, in the quotations that, uh, that are found in Younger's book. I'd like you to notice that she's not simply saying that this passage describes the horrible things that happened in the town of Gibeah. She's saying that the main purpose of this passage, the reason that God included this story in the Bible, is to control women's behavior. Only women's behavior, as if there were a conspiracy between God and men to keep women in their place. She says this, by insinuating that women, by the way they behave, are responsible for male sexual aggression, the narrator relies on a fundamental patriarchal strategy for exercising social control over women. Using women's fear of male violence as a means of regulating female behavior is one of patriarchy's most powerful weapons. Exum sees the concubine as the tragic heroine in this story, fighting against the tyranny of patriarchy. Exum even views the concubine's unfaithfulness to the Levite, which may not be what the Hebrew passage actually says, and she sees the woman's unfaithfulness as something positive, that the concubine is asserting her physical sexual autonomy. And everything that happens in the story is the men's desperate attempt to put her back in her place. I'd like you to know that Exum's interpretation is a classic case of eisegesis, not exegesis. Exegesis means getting the meaning of a text out of the text. That's the proper way of interpreting any text. Eisegesis means putting the meaning into text, which is what eis means, into. As you can imagine, with eisegesis, you can make the text say whatever you want. So how do you know that an interpretation is an eisegesis, not an exegesis? An eisegesis is not supported by the text. Exum claims that the concubine was subjected to abuse and murder because she was unfaithful to the Levite. Is that so? First, I hope you remember from last week that the better translation is she was angry with him, not she was unfaithful to him. Even if she were unfaithful, the horrific abuse she suffered did not take place right after her unfaithfulness as her punishment. Remember? She was not chased out by the Levite for her unfaithfulness, she voluntarily went back to her father in hot anger. And it was the Levite who wanted to reconcile with her. And when he lodged at Gibeah, 
It was not his intention to have her abused and killed at the hands of the mob. He did not push her out to the mob because he wanted to punish her for her unfaithfulness. He was simply being a coward, sacrificing her for his safety. And initially, the mob did not want the woman. They wanted to abuse the Levite. And they didn't know whether she was unfaithful or not. Exum blames what happened to the woman in the story to patriarchy. Patriarchy is a social system in which the father is the head of the family or a family, community, society based on this system or governed by men. We cannot deny that the kind of culture promoted in the Bible is patriarchal. God is presented as the father, even though he has no gender, as a spirit. The same is true of God the Son. And he came as a male rather than a female to be our Savior and Lord. Exum obviously views today's passage as an example of toxic patriarchy. I agree. If by toxic patriarchy, we mean toxic abuses of patriarchy, not that patriarchy itself is toxic. Anything, even something good, can be abused when it gets into the hands of a sinner. And it's so ironic that even the Bible can be abused. And I dare say that the Bible is being abused by Exum, by her Jesus. Matriarchy can be abused just as patriarchy can be abused and become toxic. While the Bible affirms patriarchy, it does not condone toxic patriarchy. After all, what is the main point of this story? There was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which was the reason behind all the wicked things that the people committed in the story. The Bible condemns the men of Gibeah for wanting to abuse the Levite in a homosexual gang rape. The Bible condemns them for assaulting and abusing the woman all night long, which ended up killing her. The Bible also condemns the old man for offering to the crazed mob his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine in place of the Levite. The Bible condemns the Levite for getting a concubine in addition to his wife, for pushing her out to the mob to save himself, for going to bed and sleeping soundly while his concubine was being brutally abused by the savage mob, for intending to be on his way without his concubine, for speaking so unlovingly and unfeelingly to her ravaged body, lying at the door, and for mutilating her body. Even the way the concubine's father showed hospitality to his son-in-law is not entirely positive. And he was guilty of handing his own daughter over as a concubine. The concubine is the victim here, and unjustly so. 
Whatever she did, she did not deserve to meet the kind of horrific suffering and death. You see, if anything, this story is a warning to men and their abuse of the leadership that God granted to them. There is no conspiracy between God and these men to keep women in their place. But can we say that the Old Testament contributed to the wicked acts of these men in this story, to this horrible example of toxic patriarchy? It is no news that women were not treated as equals in many ways under the Mosaic Covenant, under the Mosaic Law. Here are some examples. Leviticus 27, 3 and 4. If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. As you can see, a male was valued more than a female, though here it meant that, means, it meant that a male had to pay more for his valuation. But I'd like you to notice that the difference was not just between gender, genders. There were different valuations assigned for different age groups. So those between 5, to 20, uh, five and 20 years old were valued at less. And those who were less than 5 years old were valued at even less. Not only do you see differences in gender, but maybe more fundamental than the gender difference was the difference in functional capacity. How much work a person can do. In Leviticus 2, 12, 25, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. As you can see, a woman's, a woman's time of uncleanness was longer when she gave birth to a girl 14 days, compared to when she gave birth to a boy seven days. This gives the impression that females were more unclean than males. But we have to keep in mind that being unclean didn't mean sinful. Also, according to Numbers 36, the father's inheritance went only to the sons, not to the daughters. The only exception was when the father did not have any sons and the daughters married within their clan to keep the inheritance within the tribe. These laws don't seem fair. But they are what we would expect in a patriarchal society. A matriarchal society, by definition, would be biased towards women's advantages, too. But there seems to be functional considerations at play in these laws. In an agricultural society which required more brute strength, males were generally more valuable than females. It is hard to separate the, different, the differing functional values from the equality of being, but they are not the same. The kidnappers of a billionaire may demand more money in ransom than for a child of a middle-class couple. Does that mean that the child has less value than the billionaire as a human being? 
No. The kidnappers, if caught, would be charged with the same crime and same sentence. Whether they kidnapped a billionaire or a child, they would be charged with the same crime and same sentence. We may judge people according to their social position, material wealth, and external appearance, or knowledge. But these standards do not determine the true ontological value of a person. The patriarchal arrangement in the Bible does not mean that God is misogynistic, that God hates women, and deems women to be inferior. But we have to keep in mind a very important factor here, the fallen condition of man. What did Jesus say regarding the divorce laws under the Mosaic Covenant? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. This sounds like God's law in the Old Testament accommodated the sinfulness of man. How can that be? Jesus said, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. This is true not only of individuals, but also of different periods in redemptive history. Although there were a lot of rules and a lot more rules and regulations in the Old Testament, the demand was less stringent in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. Consider what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Do you see? Jesus is telling his disciples that because he came, they are, now, they, they are now faced with a higher standard. This may be too simplistic, but we can say this, that less was demanded in the Old Testament because only the promises were given. But more is demanded now in the New Testament because we are given the fulfillment of all those promises in Jesus Christ. The more grace is given, the greater holiness and obedience are required. One of the biggest mistakes people make in understanding the Bible is not seeing this progression of God's revelation. But this is obvious in the way the two major divisions in the Bible are titled, Old Testament and New Testament. What does that tell you? There is something old about the Old Testament, and there's something new about the New Testament. You see, there is a progression within the Bible. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from promise and fulfillment, from promise and prophecy to fulfillment, from shadows and signs to realities and substances, from the first creation to the new creation. As you can see, the progression of God's revelation is toward what is better, Hebrews 8.22. This movement of progression is not evolutionary in nature, becoming something different by chance mutation. 
This movement is organic in nature, like a seed growing into a fruit tree. God did not give us the New Testament because he tried to save his people by the law and it didn't work. Think about it. We still have the Old Testament in the Bible. Why? Because the New Testament is the outgrowth of the Old Testament. Same in substance, but different in manifestation. Like a fully grown tree is different in appearance than the tree in a seed form. We can say that the Old Testament is still there to provide a contrast. Like a black velvet ring box for a diamond ring to highlight the brilliance of the diamond. The Old Testament is there to show the newness and betterness of the New Testament. That's why you see that the Old Testament arrangements are not perfect. The Mosaic Law, in many ways, reflected the curse under which mankind was placed after the fall of Adam and Eve. So we should not forget what the Bible says about the male-female relationship at the beginning before the fall. This is how God designed it to be at the time of creation. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's amazing how in this little sentence, so much is communicated. Think about this. First, we learn that God created man first. That's why God is viewing the man and talking this way in Genesis 2-7. And God designed man to be a social being. It is not good that the man should be alone. We also learn that God is gracious, knowing our need before we ask. God intended to make a companion, companion for Adam even before Adam asked for her. And the companion God would make for him would be his equal in being and dignity. I'll make a helper, helper fit for him. Before the woman was created, God brought animals to Adam and Adam named them. The conclusion of this little story is that for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Even as he named these animals, Adam instinctively knew that the animals were not equal with him. But of course, when God finally brings the woman, he cries out with joy. Now this is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. This story confirms in a dramatic way what was already declared in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is clearly that the male was created in the image of God and the female was created in the image of God. And they were the only ones who were created in God's image after his likeness, while all other creatures were created according to their own kinds. But the companion would be his subordinate in her function. I'll make a helper. The word helper can refer to God too. So the status of the helper, whether she was a subordinate or a superior, should be determined by the context. 
And many things indicate that the woman was man's functional subordinate. Adam was able to carry out his work, particularly naming the animals without the help of the woman. Adam also named the woman as he named the animals and thereby asserted his authority over them. Also consider God's curse on the woman for her sin. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.16 Did she have to be ruled by her husband as a result of God's curse and not before? No. Observe God's first curse on the woman. It was not that she would have to bear children. That, that was not the curse. That was already said before the fall when God blessed the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28 The curse was the pain that would accompany her childbearing. The same thing is true of the second curse. The curse was not that she would have to submit to her husband. Rather, it was that it would be painful for her because now she would want to dominate. God said, your desire shall be for your husband. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that women generally have more love than men. The same expression was used in God's warning to Cain in Genesis 4-7. Since desire is for you, that this sin wants to control you, but you must rule over it. The curse was that now the submission that she enjoyed and she willingly did before the fall would be painful for her because now she wants to engage in power play and she wants to dominate her man in some way. Is patriarchy an evil, toxic system? No. As God designs a functional system, our Constitution affirms something similar. We are all, be, be all equal before the law, but we are not all equal in our functions. There are leaders who lead and there are followers who follow their lead. Some have more authority than others because of their greater responsibility, but they also have greater accountability. But we are all equal before the law and we all get one vote regardless of our status. President does get 10,000 votes. He gets one vote as well. So the woman was created to be the man's helper, specifically within the context of marriage. But she is equal in dignity as a fellow human being because she bears God's image, just as man. But sadly, there has been much abuse of leadership on the part of men, and there have been countless attempts to usurp men's authority and leadership on the part of women. And today's passage is a very sad, horrific example of that. Into this situation, Jesus came. He came as our Savior, and He came as a man. You can say that in doing so, He affirmed patriarchy. But what kind of patriarchy did He practice? No one could look down on Him, though He was without material wealth, 
or social position. No one could doubt his spiritual authority as teacher, Lord, and Son of God. But his dignity did not come by putting others down, even women. Not just men, but also women felt their true value as God's image bearers, as God's children restored in his presence, even many women of shameful past. Rather than feeling put down, disregarded, and marginalized, and cast away, women felt their value reaffirmed and renewed in the presence of Jesus Christ. Why was this case? Paul said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The Levite sacrificed the concubine to save himself. In some way that is not surprising for a son of Adam. What did Adam do when he was confronted by God about his sin? The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. He threw his wife under the bus and he even blamed God. In his fallen condition, he forgot the first thing about leadership, taking responsibility for his actions and his household. But Jesus, the last Adam, came and showed what true leadership is. Instead of blaming his sinful bride, he took the blame. How different this is from us, who keep scores with our spouses so we can get back at them. And so instead of throwing his bride under the bus, Jesus threw himself under the wrath of God. He gave himself up for her. He did not do that simply because he felt sorry for her. Listen carefully. True love is not just a passionate but blind act of kindness or sacrifice for someone. True love is an act of kindness and sacrifice with a vision, always with a good goal in mind. Jesus gave himself up for the church so he could make her what God intended her to be, full of splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy, without any blemish. He did not just do things for her. He did not just act kindly and nicely to her. He did it for her ultimate good, to make her all that God intended her to be. To that end, he made the ultimate sacrifice of his life. And to that end, he continues to work as our risen Lord at the right hand of God. He will not stop until this goal is perfectly and completely
uh, uh, completely done and achieved. And God and Christ will certainly not fail in this. So men are called to lead in the home, to lead in true love, in Christ-like love. Women are called to help the men lead by their willing submission. This doesn't mean that women have no say. They're supposed to help their men be the best leader possible. They do that by offering their advice and opinions and perspectives so that their husbands can make the right decision. But you also have to leave your husbands to make the decision. I often say in premarital counseling, the husband is the president and the wife is the chief of staff. The president who doesn't take his chief of staff seriously is foolish. The chief of staff who doesn't respect the president is out of line. So this is what I often say in premarital counseling. The husband should lead his wife in such a way that she doesn't feel like a second-class citizen, affirming her equality with him. The wife should honor her husband so that he doesn't feel so threatened about his leadership that he tries to fight for it or force it on her, or even worse, give up his leadership and just check out. Brothers and sisters, let us examine our hearts and our lives to see whether we have toxic patriarchal beliefs and tendencies and toxic feminist beliefs and tendencies against the teaching of the Bible. Maybe we are more infected by these things than we think. And the only cure is to know Christ in a greater measure so that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the character of Jesus Christ can be thoroughly, thoroughly formed in our lives. To lead with love to the point of laying down one's life is hard. To submit to an imperfect leader is hard. But patriarchy is a temporary system. There will be no patriarchy in heaven. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 And that is spiritually true now. But it will be physically true only in heaven. Even though there are these physical and social distinctions still, whether one is a leader or a follower in the temporary life doesn't, it matters little in view of the eternal life to come. Yes, these distinctions are still here with us, but whether one is a leader or a follower in this temporary life matters little, little in view of the eternal life to come. Jesus said, so the last will be first and the first last. She who humbly honors her far from perfect husband in submission to God will be exalted far more than he who is negligent in leading his family in self-sacrificial love. 
Jesus demonstrated this to us in his suffering and humiliation in this life and his glory and honor in the resurrection unto eternal life. Brothers and sisters, let us be faithful in the various callings that God has given to each of us as leaders or followers, as husbands or wives, as men or women. Let us be faithful in the place, in the roles that God has given to us, knowing that God will be just and gracious in his abundant reward for all eternity. God doesn't apologize for patriarchy because he sees all things in his eternal perspective. And he knows that whatever temporary roles that we may have in this life will lead to eternal glory. That it will be not what position we hold in this life, but how faithful we are in the various callings. Because he knows that no matter how low one's place is in this life, if he's faithful, if she's faithful, he knows how much he will exalt in that glorious heaven for all eternity. So brothers and sisters, let us have that eternal perspective and let us be faithful to the callings that God has given to us, whatever it may be, knowing how God is just and gracious to reward his people. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we give you thanks and praise for your wonderful grace and mercy to us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our perfect bridegroom, our perfect Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are our heavenly Father who loves us, protects us, who cares for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have shown to us how we ought to conduct ourselves in various relationships that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that even as the world grows darker and darker, even as the world plunges into chaos, as everybody does what is right in his own eyes, I pray, Lord, that your church in our communion and in, in and the covenant families and covenant marriages that we have in the name of Jesus Christ will show forth to the world the beauty and glory of your design for human relationships, the relationship between male and female. And I pray, Lord, that the beauty of that relationship will draw men and women to Christ, ultimately to their relationship with their God and their Savior, Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, protect your church. Bless our marriages, bless our families, and bless our church as we stand firm upon the rock of your word and the work of Jesus Christ and your eternal and unbreakable love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.